0: All right, good morning, everybody. About three Good morning, everyone. Excellent. Hey, thanks for raving the weather and being with us in person today. Uh, If you couldn't, thanks for being with us online today. What's up, Krishma? Um, Glad to have you here. Either way, as we are in week two, so if you're here for the first time, you've kind of stumbled into week two of a series that we've entitled, This Changes Everything. And it's really very simple. What we're doing in this series is we are working together through the New Testament book of Titus. So a little three-chapter book found at the end of your New Testament. And because of the way our growth groups work, um, you know, we're we're doing this as a church-wide series. So growth groups run for six weeks. And so we've got six weeks to get through these three chapters. And the math wizards are like, oh, so you're gonna spend two weeks on each chapter, and that's exactly it. And we're trying to thoroughly not exhaustively, but thoroughly work our way through each chapter. So, last week, uh, if you weren't here, we met the book's author, who was Paul. We met the recipient, who is Titus. And then we began to um, look a little bit at the plan that Paul had for Titus and work our way through the first five verses. So, what we're going to do today. As we're going to pick up at verse 5, we're going to actually read through the end of the chapter. Just try and familiarize ourselves on a larger scale with what's going on in this chapter. And then we'll come back up to verse 5 and work through what we can today. So, picking up at verse 5, Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Encouraging guy, Paul, right? He can, continues in his, in his encouragement. He says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be, of, may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny, deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So, again, we're, we're going to come back up to verse 5 and begin to work our way through um, the, the plan that, that Paul has asked Titus to live into there in the church in Crete. Before we do, want to take a minute and pray. A couple things we want to pray for this morning. Uh, if you get the church emails, you probably saw Jody Idness, who um, attends faith here. Her and her family do. Uh, her mom passed away this week, and so want to be praying for her and her family. And then this morning, uh, my phone was blowing up, and some of you know Julie uh, McIntosh. She attends faithfully here. Last week, she had cancer related to, um, or she had surgery related to cancer that she discovered suddenly Hey, I've got cancer, we've got to do surgery." And this morning, they had to rush her back into surgery. Uh, she's been in the hospital the whole week and has not been responding well, and so she is in surgery right now. So we want to pray for her as well, and then we'll get into things. Father, just as we begin today, just pray that you'd have your hands on Jody and her siblings and on her family father just as they are mourning the loss of jody's mom father we just pray that you would meet them that you would comfort them even though um, her mom's journey is over and she is more alive than she has ever been for those who are left behind it's just hard please help that family father we just pray for julie that you would please give the doctors wisdom that you would help them to figure out what is going on and how to best address this. We just pray for your hand to healing and mercy on her body. And just as we continue in Titus this morning, we just pray that you would speak your truth to us, that you would help us to hear what you have for the church then and what you have for the church now. Let's ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, up here verse 5, Paul speaks to Titus and he talks to him about, hey, you know, we've left you in Crete to appoint elders and, and to set in order what remains. And, um, and then Paul kind of launches into to, uh, what, what those elders should look like. Now, there are a number of ways we could approach this section. Like, we could spend time arguing today about what's an elder. Like, is that somebody on a church staff? Is that somebody who's on the elder board? Is it both? Is it Neither. We could spend time today arguing about the gender of an elder. Like can only men serve as elders or can women serve as elders as well? We could even spend time today kind of combing through the church constitution and see what it has to say about how you can launch a campaign to have me removed from my role if after going through the qualifications you're like, that guy shouldn't be here. right? We're not going to do that. right? We're not going to do any of those things. Instead, what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of work through the different qualifications as Paul puts them up there. And then after we work through the sea of qualifications, we're just going to take a step back and think of some implications that these qualifications have for every one of us. Every one of us sitting in the room today who says, hey, I follow Jesus. Every one of us who is a Jesus follower who is watching online, whether we're elders or not, whether we think we might be someday or not. We're going to think through, what do these qualifications have for all of us? What kind of implications do they have for our lives? Now again, Paul is, is there and he's, he's got, you know, Titus is in Crete. Paul has been in Crete with Titus. They start all these churches all over Crete. Paul leaves and he leaves Titus to, to carry things on. And he's, he's basically saying, listen, you, you need to put what remained in order like, Titus, we, we've got these churches and they're full of people who found faith, who have found forgiveness. But, but there are all kinds of ways. I mean, you, you read it at the end of the chapter where like there's all this teaching coming in from the outside that's not bad and they're just, they're prone to it. They've got all this brokenness that resides within them that they're prone to respond to. You got to help them get their lives straight. And then Paul shares with Titus the first strategy that he has for him that's supposed to help get these Cretans, get their lives straightened out again. And it's to appoint elders in the churches. And then Paul goes on to describe the qualifications for those elders. Now, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't, but it stuck out to me that two times, Paul says that an elder should be above reproach. Repeats himself. Above reproach, above reproach. And for me, that raised a couple of questions. Number one, what's that mean anyway? And number two, why is Paul repeating himself? Why need you just say it one time? So we'll start with meaning. What does, it, what does it mean that an elder is above reproach? I would contend it does not mean that an elder is going to be faultless or perfect. If that's the case, we would have no leaders here at Faith Covenant Church because there ain't no perfect people here. Right? If, you're like, if you're like, well, I'm the perfect person, go find another church so you don't ruin our streak. All right? We are a church, we are here because we realize we're not perfect. That's what it means to be part of the church. And so it's not that you're perfect or flawless. Actually, in the original language, this term here, this, this phrase, it, it was a legal term. And it carried with it the idea of evidence. Evidence. Paul's saying, hey, there shouldn't be ongoing clear evidence of certain things in people's lives if they're going to serve in this capacity. That's, that's what he's talking about here. But then he, he says it twice. And I find myself thinking, Paul, why didn't you say it one time? Why do you need to repeat yourself? And I think the repeating becomes a little bit more clear when you take this and you break it into lists. So let's let's bring up our list slide here. So you've got three different lists. You've got a couple lists of vices and a list of virtues. And in front of these two lists, Paul says an elder should be above reproach. He's like, hey, there shouldn't be ongoing evidence that any thinking jury could look at and convict this person of this when when it comes to things going on in their home and when it comes to things going on in their heart. So we're going to start with the home. Paul says, an elder should be above reproach. He says, the, the elder should be a husband of one wife. Literally translated, a one woman man or a one wife man. Now, what's Paul have in mind there? How wooden should we be in our understanding of that? Is like as Paul saying, if you're not married, you can't be an elder. One woman man. If I don't got a woman, then, then no eldership. Or I met somebody before first service today. It was a couple. They had both been married. Both their spouses had passed. And they had remarried each other. So, so that man had had two wives. One, one husband one wife. Does that mean he can't be an elder? How wouldn't should we be in our understanding of this? Could it, be, could it be that Paul is speaking to people who live in a culture. And try and imagine this. He's speaking to people who live in a culture that has idolized Sexuality. A culture that has told people the most important thing about you is what you desire sexually. It defines you to such an extent that people would describe themselves in terms like, I am straight, gay, trans, pan, bi, whatever. The number one identifying marker of who they are as a person is determined by their sexual desires. A culture that tells them the only way they can live happy and fulfilling lives is to pursue those desires. A culture that tells them whatever gods there might be out there, they couldn't care less who you sleep with. See, that's exactly the kind of culture Paul was speaking into there in Crete. And the Cretans had bought into that culture lock, stock, and barrel. And so Paul comes along with the gospel, with Christianity, that has a radically different message It says the most important thing about you isn't your sexual desires. It's who you are in relationship to God. And the thing that's going to give you a happy and fulfilling life isn't pursuing whatever sexual desire you have. It's living into God's design for you. A God who very much cares who you sleep with. Could it be that Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you've got folks who are living into their sexuality in a way that reflects the culture that surrounds them instead of God's directives for them, they shouldn't serve as elders. This is in part why the NIV translates this as faithful to his wife, putting the emphasis on fidelity instead of gender or or remarriage. Or Paul will stick with the home and say, hey, elders should, you know, their children should be believers. Believers. Literally translated, um, believers here can either mean have faith or be faithful. So again, what's Paul saying? Like is Paul saying that if I'm an elder, you know I gotta have kids because you know, I can't have children who believe if I don't have children. Or is Paul saying that if I'm going to be an elder, my kids have to be believers. And if that is the case, like is there some point in time that that stops? Or as my kids are adults and move out of my house, do their faith decisions still impact what role I can serve in in the church? Or is Paul simply saying, hey, like while your kids are in the house, you know, they, they can't, you know, McPeak's no debauchery among your kids if you're going to be an elder here, you know, no, no, no crazy wild parties. Or, you know, or is Paul saying, Home is ministry number one. And if your kids are off the rails, God is freeing you up for a season to focus in on ministry number one before you serve in this capacity at church. So as Paul begins, he's like, listen, elders should be above reproach. There shouldn't be ongoing evidence in the home. And then he moves from the home to the heart. And he says, hey, an elder shouldn't be arrogant. Arrogant. Or, or as other translations put it, they shouldn't be overbearing. Now this is, this is somebody who is right, who always is right, and nobody can tell them different. Anybody know an arrogant person? <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. It's right. so about a year ago. I was at a a conference for the denomination. I was sitting in a room with Tammy and Hochi. They are the um, pastors of Talcomo Soy, a a church plant in the Dominican who we partner with. And um, Tammy and Hochi were just sharing with a group of pastors, hey, this is our church, and this is some of the wins, some of the challenges. And as we sat there listening to them, there was an individual in the room who um, felt free to share their expert opinion with Tammy and Hochi, about what strategies work for church planting and don't work with church planting in the DR, about how architecture works in the DR and what they can and cannot do with their building. And as I sat and listened to this person share their expert opinions, what struck me was this individual had been to the DR one time for a one-week mission trip when they were a teenager and now in their 50s. They're telling Hochi, who was born and raised and lived his entire life in the DR, and they're telling Tammy, who's ministered down there for a decade now, this is how ministry works and this is how architecture works. And I thought to myself, there it is. Arrogance in the flesh right there in front of me. Paul says, that's not who you want for an elder. Or Paul says, elders shouldn't be quick-tempered. Nothing tricky, nothing tricky about the language here. All right? Paul's saying that, that, that person with the short fuse, A person who's quick to fly off the handle. Like it's always there bubbling beneath the surface and you're walking on eggshells lest they erupt. He's like, that's not who you want in leadership. Where he says, elders shouldn't be drunkards. Now again, our translation's trying to help us here with getting too wooden. Literally translated, that would be given to wine. And the translation's trying to keep us from going, well, okay, given to wine. As long as I'm not drinking wine, I can, I'm okay, right? Like I walk up to my bartender and be like, bartender, I want one bourbon, one scotch, one. <laughs> ah, there's a couple Thorogood fans out there, uh-huh. I'm th- if you're like Thorogood, you're not missing anything, okay? You're probably better off, right? But it, it, the idea here is not, you know, listen, I can just, you know, as long as I stay away from wine, I'm good. No, the idea is Hey, if I am under the influence of any spirit, it should be the Holy Spirit. And if I am under the influence of alcohol or THC or hallucinogens or opioids or whatever else, I am, my, I am living outside of God's design for me. And if I am under the influence of something other than God's spirit frequently enough that I could be guilty of being called a drunkard, then I shouldn't be an elder. Or an elder shouldn't be a violent person. In the ancient world, this was a term used for throwing a punch or somebody who was a boxer. Paul's like, listen, you you have somebody who has to resort to physical violence or intimidation to get their way. That's not who you want in leadership. Or Paul will say that they shouldn't be greedy for gain. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul Paul will say that um, elders, Paul and Peter both say that it's appropriate to, to financially compensate elders for some of the work that they do. But what Paul's getting at here is that if you have somebody who sees the church as a tool to leverage for a life of opulence, that's not who you want in this role. So as he begins, he gives you two lists of vices. He's like, there shouldn't be ongoing, compelling evidence of these things in their home or in their heart. And then he moves on to things that should be present in an elder's life. Says they're hospitable. Now, we teach our kids to to have stranger danger, which is probably a good thing. This is the opposite. Literally translated, it is stranger loving. The idea is I'm gonna be good to somebody who I don't even know, who I I have no sense of indebtedness or obligation towards, somebody who I would expect isn't gonna pay me back or reciprocate. I'm just going to love them with no strings attached because that's what love is about. And not only should they be lovers of, of strangers, but they should be lovers of good. Now, the idea here is you have somebody who has such an affinity for good, they, they don't just like think about it or like it, but they actually live into it. One of my favorite conversations on staff at church is when somebody comes to me and they're like, I got this great idea. The church should be doing... And you just fill in the blank. And what they really mean is I got this great idea for you to do and for me to watch. That's not what he has in mind. Lovers of good, they don't just love the idea of generosity. They give faithfully and generously. Lovers of good, they don't just love the idea of of young people finding faith. They serve in faith kids and in student ministry. Lovers of good aren't just excited about shut-ins being cared for. They actually call and visit them. Lovers of good aren't just worried about food insecurity. They actually serve in feeding programs. Paul says, you, you don't want just somebody who has an affinity for good. You want somebody who is so passionate about it that it, 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 it just, it's expressed in their lives. Okay, we'll do a couple combos here. Because some of these go together and we, we want to honor time here says they should be self-controlled and disciplined. Now, self-control, the idea with self-control is I'm going to make myself say no to what I want to say yes to. Because while it may be pleasant in the moment, it'll be, long, it'll be bad in the long run. And disciplined is I'm going to make myself say yes to what I want to say yes to in the moment because it's not pleasant, but it'll be good for me in the long run. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul illustrates this through uh, the example of uh, athletics. So that's what we'll do here. Um, Some of you may or may not know, every July, I participate in a sprint triathlon. And I do that in part because my role as a pastor is incredibly physically sedentary and incredibly emotionally and spiritually demanding. And that's a bad combination if I want any kind of longevity in life or in career. I mean, you just, you're sitting, you're writing your sermon, you're sitting, you're having a message, you're sitting, leading a meeting, you're sitting in the hospital. It's physically sedentary, but very emotionally demanding. And so to try and offset those things, you know, I, I participate in a sprint triathlon that I train for and, and I participate in. Now, if I want to do well on race day, if I want to know the pleasure of turning in a time at that event, better than congregants decades younger than myself, ooh, does that feel good, right? If, if I want the physical and emotional benefits from the training and from the event, then all year long, I need to be self-controlled. I need to say no to, to, to high sugar, high calorie drinks, uh, junk food, fast food, that kind of stuff, because as pleasant as it is in the moment, it will not serve me well on race day. And all year long, I need to say yes twice a week, getting into the pool, even in January when it's cold. I need to say yes to running once a week, even though my back hates it. I need to say yes to getting on the bike twice a week, even in the winter when I'm on a trainer and I hate that thing. Because as unpleasant as that is in the moment, it will serve me well on race day. Paul says leaders should be people who can tell themselves yes and no in the right areas of life or they should be upright and holy. Now, the idea here is you have somebody who is living their life in such a way that it points to God in a positive kind of way, and, and they do this in just the everyday, regular kind of stuff in life. So, so for example, in, in the world of like vocation, this is the kind of person you want working on your staff or who you want to do business with because you know they're going to be honest, they're going to do a good job. They're going to be trustworthy. They're reliable. They come through. And it's not so much that they're doing this for you. You just happy you just happen to be the happy beneficiary of being caught between them and a God who they're trying to glorify and the everyday kind of stuff in their life. And then finally, Paul says they should be sound in doctrine and able to teach. In other words, they know their Bible and they know it well enough that they can teach other people, and then when somebody's out of line, they can call them out and be like, no, that's nuts. This is what the the scriptures actually say. Now, Paul runs through all of these qualifications. And and it can be, you you can almost, you can begin to drown in all of this stuff. Because he's he's throwing a lot at us here. So again, what I want to do is just kind of take a step back and think about what are the implications that these qualifications could have for all of us. Now to do that. It's helpful to remind ourselves again. Why Paul is even having this conversation with Titus. So you go back to verse 5. Paul says hey. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained in order. And point elders in every town as I directed you. Again. They start all these, these churches all over the island. You got all these brand new Christians. Who, are, who have faith. They're forgiven. But their, their ethics and their worldview Are still shaped. By the broken Cretan culture that surrounds them, rather than God's truth, Paul says, "Hey, you need to put in. You need to get that put in order." And we, last week we talked about how that was a medical term, and it was it was synonymous for like taking a broken bone and setting it again. He's like, "You you got your people, their minds, their lives are broken. You need to fix them." And and because again, the church is not just a place where people find faith. That's part. of One of the reasons we exist is to help people connect in relationship to God for the first time. But we also exist as a church to help people become more and more like Jesus, to align their worldview and their ethics with Christ and the the truths of the gospel. And Paul's like, Titus, you need to do this with those Cretans. And again, you read the end of the chapter, Titus has got his work cut out for him. So this is his job. And then Paul says, hey, the the first strategy that I have for you in helping bring this change about in their lives is you get the Cretans around these kind of people. If you can get your broken people around mended people like this, this is the first thing that I want you to do that's going to help affect change in their lives. Now, let's bring our list back up because it's easier to see it with the list. Paul lists off all these you know, different qualifications for an elder. Not rhetorical. Somebody count and do the math. How many qualifications? 14, Fourteen is correct. You get free coffee after church. The rest, you pay for it. All right? um, 14 of them. He's like, hey, we've got broken people. Get them around folks who've got these 14 things going on in their world. Now, don't call it out. Just think. All right? Just think here. You look at these 14 qualifications. How many of them are about character? And how many of them are about competency? How many of them are about character? Who you are. You're hospitable. You got control of your temper. You, you know, you, you're, you're holy and upright. How many are about character? Who you are. And how many of them are about competency? What you know and can do. Like you know your Bible and can teach it. Just look through the list, which ones are character, which ones are competency. See, the right answer is 12 to 13 of these are about character, and only one to two are about competency. Titus has got this church full of folks who are just, they've found faith, but they're still all messed up when it comes to their worldview and their ethics. And Paul's like, get them around these kind of people, and the these kind of people he wants them to be around are people who are known for their character. Now, a couple of implications for us. First one is this. When we think about what is going to help produce change in people's lives, we tend to think, well, if we just get them in the right programs, that's going to affect change. And Paul's going, no, 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 get them around the right people get them in proximity with, get them in relationship with the right people. Programs aren't bad. Programs have their place. But Paul is like, hey, it's about the people. Which takes us to our next implication. When it comes to the to the mended people who Paul wants Titus to get his broken people around, it's it's not all about what the mended people know and can do. It's all about who they are. It's about their character way more than it is their competency. Now, that's not to say that competency doesn't play a role. Like, you can't know what Christ-like character is without a degree of competency. But while you, while you need a degree of competency to know what Christ-like character is, you can have all the competency in the world and no Christ-like character. I, I've got to know who Jesus is to live like Jesus. But I can know all kinds of things about Jesus and live nothing like him. Paul, Paul's trying to get us to understand here that Christ competency that lacks Christ-like character it will not motivate or inspire change in people 's lives who, who need their worldview and their their ethics realigned Bo- both both play a role, both have a degree of importance, both get a part in the play, but character gets the lead, and competency plays the supporting role. What we know what we can do is not unimportant. But it's not as important as who we are. If we are going to be the kind of church where people don't just find a relationship with Jesus, but then they begin to change. They begin to grow more and more like him. It's not just because we are competent It's not just because we are biblically literate. It is not just because we are doctrinally sound. It is because we are a community that is peopled by individuals who have deep and abiding character. Again, both are important. Both are important. But character gets the lead. And competency gets the supporting role. If we're going to be a people who really see change take place in the lives of individuals who walk through our doors, it's because we are a people who have deep and abiding character. A character that is so different from the culture that surrounds us, people can't help but take notice. A character that so reflects who Jesus is that it can't help but be attractive. So, as we finish want to begin to think through some questions. We've just got three of them, and then we'll continue. So, question number one. When it comes to broken people's lives being transformed, do I tend to place a greater emphasis on competency or character? When I'm thinking about, okay, what's going to help people really have the image of Jesus formed inside of them? How much do I think like Paul does here in Titus? How much do I think differently? Am I thinking, oh, it's the programs? Or am I thinking, no, it's the people? Number two, when it comes to my own life and spirituality, do I need to focus on competency or on my character? And and I would argue at different seasons of our lives, it's one or the other. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like for everybody who's shown up at church today and watch online, I you know, I've discerned what season you're in. I don't know that. That's your job. But where you are right now, do you need to invest in more biblical literacy or have you learned enough and you need to begin to apply the mountain of knowledge you already have? Do you need to cultivate competency or character in this season? Then number three, does my church have a greater need for competency or character in this season? Like as an individual congregation right here at faith, and again, I I think different seasons, one is more appropriate than the other. Right here in this season, do we need greater investment and competency or do we need greater cultivation of character? I say, I, I want to begin to think through these, because my hope is that we're asking these questions right now, we're starting to think about this, in this week and in the weeks to come, as we continue to work through this book, we're going to continue to wrestle with these kind of ideas, because Paul is just, he's going to be relentless in this book, as he just keeps coming after us about worldview, and ethics, and character, and competency. So let's pray together, and we'll continue in worship. Father, just just pray that you would meet us. And for those of us who are following Jesus today, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds about what it is we need to be cultivating. If we're in a season where we genuinely need to dig into the scriptures and try and figure out its truth for our lives and understand that, just pray that we would see that. Father, if we're in a season where we need to cultivate who we are, if there's things that any reasonable jury would say, hey, they're guilty, that shouldn't be present, just pray for grace to see that and to address that if there are things that, that should be present right now that aren't, I pray that we would see that and begin to address that. Father, I just pray that we would more and more be a place full of people with deep and abiding character, the kind of character that cannot help but be noticed as different and that is attractive to people because it reflects who Jesus is. It's in his name we pray. Amen.